Welcome to another special presentation by American Bankruptcy Institute. I am Bill Rochelle, ABI's Editor-at-Large. Today we're going to analyze U.S. Bank versus Village at Lake Ridge, a unanimous decision handed down on March 5 by the U.S. Supreme Court. The opinion for the unanimous court was written by Justice Elena Kagan. Interestingly, however, the concurring opinion may end up being more important than Justice Kagan's opinion for the court. The concurring opinion was written by liberal-leaning Justice Sonia Sotomayor, joined by conservatives Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, and centrist Anthony Kennedy. The Supreme Court granted certiorari to decide the standard of appellate review from a decision declaring that someone was or was not a statutory insider as defined in Section 101.31 of the Bankruptcy Code. Pointedly, the Supreme Court did not grant certiorari to decide what it takes to be a non-statutory insider. Before we get into the case, let me introduce our distinguished panel of two law professors. Both are former scholars and residents at ABI. First, we have Professor Charles J. Tabb, who holds the Mildred Van Voorhees Jones Chair in Law at the Illinois College of Law, where he has been on the faculty for 33 years. Second, we have Professor Andrew B. Dawson from the University of Miami School of Law. Professor Dawson clerked on the Third Circuit and got his first big dose of bankruptcy experience in clerking for Judge Peter Walsh on the Delaware Bankruptcy Court. The facts in the Lake Ridge case uh, came from the remnants of a long and bitterly fought Chapter 11 reorganization. The corporate debtor had two creditors. There was a secured creditor with a $10 million claim and an insider with a $3 million unsecured claim. The secured creditor voted against the plan, and, of course, the insider's vote could not be counted as an accepting class in attempting to confirm the plan via the cram-down procedure. So, to have an accepting class and be in a position to confirm the plan, the insider sold the claim to a very close friend for $5,000. The plan called for a $30,000 payment to that purchaser on account of the purchased claim. The bankruptcy court denied confirmation, holding that the claim purchaser became a non-statutory insider automatically by having purchased the claim from an insider. However, and significantly, the bankruptcy judge ruled also that the claim was sold in an arm's-length transaction. On the first appeal, the Ninth Circuit Bankruptcy Appellate Panel reversed, holding that purchasing a claim from an insider does not automatically make the purchaser an insider, too. Since the ruling about selling the claim at arm's length was not clearly erroneous, the BAP reversed and held that the purchaser was not an insider under the Ninth Circuit's two-part test. In the Ninth Circuit, a non-statutory insider is an insider if, number one, 
there is a close relationship, and number two, the transaction is not at arm's length. Therefore, the BAP ruled that the purchaser was not an insider, given the finding of fact in the bankruptcy court that the sale of the claim was at arm's length. The secured creditor appealed, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed, two to one, because the bankruptcy judge's finding about an arm's length transaction was not clearly erroneous. The Supreme Court granted certiorari, but only with regard to the appellate standard of review. The lender wanted the Supreme Court to rule that the de novo standard applies when the facts at the trial court were basically undisputed. In other words, the lender wanted a rule that an appellate court can make its own inferences when the facts are undisputed. The U.S. Solicitor General sided with the debtor in arguing that the clear error standard should apply. The case was argued in the Supreme Court on October 31, and it was not clear from oral argument where the Supreme Court headed. But, of course, as we know now, when the decision came down on March 5, it was unanimous and written by Justice Kagan. So, folks, let's start the analysis of this case. Professor Tabb, I would like to uh, uh, saddle you with the responsibility of answering the first question, and here it is. Could you please uh, state for us, succinctly as you can, what was Justice Kagan's holding? My pleasure. Yeah, this is one uh, I've, I've always worried that a law student would say something like this, but it's a two-word holding, basically, Bill. The, the answer is, for a mixed question of law or fact like this, it depends. That is the holding. Sounds to me like a punt. <laughs> That's what you would think. <laughs> and, well, of course, then she has to talk about depends on what. Right, right. And, and there, I mean, of course, it's just a, a question of sort of the balance, right? I mean, she uh, uh, talks about if it's, you know, clearly historical facts, you know, the what, when, where, high stuff, that's obviously clear error. If it's um, obviously a legal question, uh, that, of course, is always de novo. Um, so the issue they had to deal with with regard to the non-statutory insider question is, well, what do you do when it's something like that where it's a mixed question? That is, you know, you're applying the historical facts found under clear error to the legal test defined, which is de novo, on that sort of merger of those two, what do you do? And she said, it depends which one is predominant. Charles, I'm glad really? you got asked that question. I'm not sure I would have had the guts to say uh, it depends, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think there is, you know, you read the opinion, you want to find the court giving us some sort of rule about how to deal with mixed questions of law and fact. And then on page eight, Justice Kagan tells us, you know, well, you know, this one is, we think, pretty easy. This is a mm -hmm. this one should be under clear air because this is mostly about facts. But not all mixed questions are the same. And from there on out in the opinion, both in the text mm -hmm. and the footnotes, keeps giving us more uh, contextual factors that might help decide and inform this standard which she gives us. Well, what are, and what are some of those contextual standards that lead you to whether it is a, a de novo or uh, clear error? Well, I mean, Bill, I mean, the, the court was basically saying that uh, you look at, in each 
case, and it's, it's ex- extremely case-specific, just which court, the fact finder or the uh, appellate court on law, which one's doing the heavy lifting, right? Which one uh, has to actually move the ball forward? Uh, she said, in this case, it's very simple. It's just, was this a uh, situation based on the relationship that had been found uh, as a historical fact? Uh, is that or is that not? Um, was it arm's length? Because under the Ninth Circuit test, uh, if it's arm's length, then apparently that's a, sort of a per se safe harbor, no matter what the nature of the relationship uh, between the parties is. And she said the bankruptcy court found that it was arm's length. End of inquiry, right? I mean, that's a factual question, uh, the court believed. Yet, and so, that would be uh, somewhat satisfying. Yet, in you know, footnote four, she says, well... That's usually the case, but if this would have been, let's say, a you know a constitutional question, the court at that point to engage in more of a de novo sort of review. So the legal context, not just the factual context, but the legal context of the the nature of the claim is going to be informative. Oh, absolutely, and and I mean it's interesting. One thing we should note too, Bill, um, note that the court also not only did they not grant cert on the question of whether it was the appropriate standard, they didn't even grant cert on whether the determination of clear error was correct. I mean, because in which, of course, in Justice Kennedy's concurrence, he sort of scratched his head about. uh, I mean, you know, just look at the facts of this case. This is a case where they say the operative question was, you know, in terms of applying the arm's length test, was Rabkin's purchase of MVP's claim conducted as if the two were strangers to each other? And the uh, finding of fact was yes, in a situation where they had had a romantic relationship. Like, I mean, the, the four concerns, like, how can that, and the dissenting judge in the Ninth Circuit was like, what is going on here? I, mean, I don't understand. That's, um, but since they didn't grant cert on whether the clear error determination was correct, they just said, is that the correct standard? And since the fact uh, issue was doing the heavy lifting here, they said yes, and that's it. But what's weird about this, Bill, is if you think about it, in a case like this, or in any case, it's completely indeterminate. And the parties cannot know. The appellate court cannot know. The the trial court cannot know what is the standard that's going to be applied. Um, Indeed, I mean, when we'll talk about Justice Sotomayor's concurrence, if a slightly different legal test were used, she emphasized, then that might put sort of more legal analysis into the mixed equation, which might make it uh, a de novo review. Indeed, it's possible that even if the facts were somewhat different, even using the same test, it could be de novo review because the balance would be different. And the problem with that, of course, is the parties have no certainty. And if the parties have no certainty, that creates the possibility of basically playing the holdup game, right? The, the parties can essentially say, just because there's uncertainty whether on appeal it will be determined that the wrong standard was used, clear error versus de novo, de novo versus clear error, they can say, buy me off, right? We, we can set, you have to settle with me, or I can cause more cost, delay, expense, which is never a good thing in a bankruptcy reorganization, uh, simply because of the indeterminacy. 
I think Charles is absolutely right. And if I wanted to make that sort of argument, I think, you know, I would simply look to footnote seven, where Justice Kagan says, you know, what the court may not do is review independently a garden variety decision as here. Garden variety decision. Like, all you have to do is allege, well, this isn't a garden variety decision of arm's length transaction. And we don't know what garden variety length is. She's sort of, uh, there's a little bit of a Potter Stewart, uh, Justice Potter Stewart, sort of, I know it when I see it. We all agree this Mm -hmm. is pretty straightforward, so we're going to apply clear air. But if there were any facts that made this somehow seem non-garden variety, then perhaps we're in clear, we're in de novo, you land. When indeed, in this case, if the court had granted cert on either the was the clear error rule correct, or especially on the legal standard question, then we would mm-hmm. not have a, a clear error review. We would have a de novo review indisputably, because then the heavy lifting is being done by is this the appropriate legal standard because then it really makes a difference well what was the nature of the relationship uh between rabkin and uh mbp right and you know and their uh officer bartlett and you know is that enough given this different legal standard as opposed to just conducted as if strangers or not period and you know the way they interpreted the ninth circuit test said that's the end of the inquiry uh, but you just tweak the test or even tweak what's being reviewed, and you can switch it into de novo. So you never know. Well, one one thing is clear from what the two of you are saying is that the Supreme Court gave us no bright-line rules for determining whether it's de novo or uh, clear error. But uh, let me ask you this. In future cases, uh, can this opinion be cited shall we say, on both sides, for either clear error or de novo? I'd expect everyone to cite this case for whatever they want, them, wherever they want. This this case, in some sense, just can be used for anything you need. Yeah, because it just says, it, when it says it depends, then, I mean, I mean, yeah. and she literally said that. And so a party can say the depends balance is a hair different in this case, and it's enough to push it from clear error to de novo. It's just like it's like a balancing scale. You know, you're on a spectrum. Say, so just move a little bit over on the spectrum. Okay, now we've tipped from clear error to de novo. And you can't rule. And the parties, the important point is the parties cannot know ex ante how a, an appellate court will resolve where on the spectrum it falls, which gives them the hold-up power. Well, I tell you what, uh, I'm I'm completely perplexed about whether the Supreme Court has advanced the ball on this issue or not in the uh, unanimous opinion. I think you could even say, Bill, it it's probably would have been more prudential for them to have dismissed the uh, the grant as improvident uh, in this case. I mean, I, I think they made things worse instead of making things better. Well, which, by the way, was something that Justice Gorsuch argued for at oral argument. Uh, he said that... Uh, we ought to dismiss the petition as improvidently granted because there is no consensus yet among the circuit courts about what the legal standard is for being a non-statutory insider. But let's talk a bit about that very peculiar concurring opinion uh, written by Justice 
out for either of the two of you to respond. What is it that Justice Sotomayor said in her concurring opinion? Well, I mean, what she basically said, and this is so curious, is she went, she discussed her discomfort with the legal test the Ninth Circuit used, which the court had not granted cert on. So it's clearly dicta in a concurrence. I mean, she did it purportedly saying, well, if there were a different test, and I'm recommending a couple possibilities here that sound a lot better to me than the Ninth Circuit test, in those tests, she said, the legal aspect might be predominant and therefore it'd be de novo. And so that's sort of, I guess, the pretext as far as why she did it. But clearly, uh, the invitation is now wide open to the lower courts to go, hmm, maybe the Ninth Circuit test isn't the wrong one. They know pretty certainly they've got four votes on the Supreme Court that way, uh, that the way the Ninth Circuit set it up, that if you prove arm's length, per se, safe harbor, you win, no matter what the relationship is. So in other words, Professor Tab, we have a situation where the Supreme Court did not grant certiorari on the legal issue. It was yes. not briefed. It was not argued. Yet four justices wrote an opinion telling us what the legal standard ought to be. Is that what happened? Pretty much. I mean, she said, I'm uncomfortable with the Ninth Circuit test, and it seems puzzling to me. And here are a couple of ideas uh, that for a different test that certainly sound better to me, but that's exactly what happened. I mean, when you read the opinion, you're like, why did she write this? What was going on? Um, and, uh, well, that's but a good I question. Why did why, why, uh, Try to get into her brain. Why did she write this and, advisory and why did, like, And why did three other justices sign on? I mean, it's, it's interesting. None of the other justices signed on uh, with Kennedy's concurrence, which, um, you know, was sort of raising, like, not, you know, I think this may have even been clear error, but we didn't review, we didn't grant cert on whether it was clear error either. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I, it's, I think she was giving us all a goal, a, a time machine goal, right? As all of us in the bankruptcy bar would think, if we could go back in time and change a moment, to go back to March of 2017. If they, they had just punted on this cert petition back then and waited for Gorsuch to arrive on the court, they would have had four justices who might have granted review for that third question. And only, an only by point. addressing I the second and the third question and the petitioner's cert uh, petition could the court have actually advanced the ball. Right? I mean, that's and what we would have needed. And we they just barely missed it. This cert was granted in March, and, you know, Justice Gorsuch took his oath of office in April. It was very close. And he seems to me he's laying out his cards that he would have granted, uh, he would have wanted to review that third question. And, and, if, um, and if they're well, not going to review the question, as Bill was saying, then dismiss it. It's like, what? I mean, it's honestly a good point. So, like, what is the point of us issuing the majority opinion we issued, which basically, I mean, it's always been true with a mixed question that, to some extent, it depends. You know, the court talks about various factors. You know, what's the historical practice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it didn't really help anybody in any way. It just mixed, made things muddier. And now they've introduced, as you're saying, this uncertainty uh, with regard to whether the Ninth Circuit's two-part test for non-statutory insiders is correct. I mean, four justices pretty obviously think it's not. 
right? I mean, it's uh, either that or they're just having fun musing, which is like, why would they do that? Right. Let, let me see if I got this right. I can fathom how four justices might say in dicta, this may not be the right standard. But this is the Supreme Court. They typically, on issues of law, will grant certiorari when there is a a split among the circuits. Right. And as Justice Gorsuch said, this legal standard has not yet been hashed out among the courts of appeal, and it's not even clear that there is a split of circuits. So when you don't yet have a clear standard, much less a split of circuits, it strikes me as rather unusual that the Supreme Court, via Justice Sotomayor, would get ahead of the circuits and start opining on what the legal standard ought to be. Am, am the whole I thing is weird. Too critical There's no here? circuit split on this issue. We didn't. The Solicitor General said, you know, supported respondents and said you should not grant cert. Those are two really mm-hmm. big predictive factors to whether the, the Supreme Court will grant cert. Solicitor General's opinion, and is there a circuit split? And we had neither really here, and yet the court went forward. And the best I can say for the opinion is, I think granting cert on that second issue, which they did as little harm as possible, because if it had come out the other way, that would have like been that. disastrous. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those uh, bills, one of those cases that's fun to discuss in law school because. You, you you work through the facts and you look at what the the lower courts held and you sort of like so Rabkin is not an insider, <laughs> someone who was like right. I mean, someone who was in a romantic relationship with one of the officers of MVP purchased their three million dollar claim for five thousand um, dollars. No bidding, not offered to anyone else. Done. Just okay. Yeah, we can't confirm plan this way. Hey, Rabkin, you want to buy the claim? Sure. I, I, it's like in, it's like that's not a not an insider. Period. Yeah, if any um, of my corporate law students are listening, that is not the standard, right? Rabkin is would be an insider, right? This guy of course. Clearly... And, and that's what. Yeah, I mean, and Kennedy and his concurrences couldn't stand it. I mean, he, he was like, just but he was hamstrung. They had not granted spurt on that question. Right, but I mean, he pretty clearly said this. Obviously, was clear error, right? Uh, but uh, well, on the other hand, we really only have two judges at the appellate uh, level who thought it was clear error, and that is Justice Kennedy and the dissenter in the Ninth Circuit. So, right, you know, right. I, 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 that that sort of to me suggests that. The Supreme Court is reluctant to find clear error. I mean, you've only got and, you know. I see you had oh, for three, sure. judges, well, that's ex- three judges on the circuit and, and nine on the. So that's twelve uh, circuit and Supreme Court justices. It looks like only two, perhaps, thought it was clear error. But then you know maybe others just didn't raise well, their and hands. That's right, Bill. And, and, and thinking about the mischief the court has done by. If it would have been far better, I think, if they had dismissed the the, the grant, uh, because now, I mean, 
I think a lot of people, I mean, they're often circuit opinions, especially if they're just like affirming on clear air. People say, well, that just can't be right. And this is a, the kind of case where you sell to someone who is, as you're saying, appears obviously to be an insider. Now the court, they haven't blessed it, right? But they said this stood up. And so this is an encouragement just sort of on the facts of like, what do you do when you're stuck in a case where you have, you know, the uh, the blocking secured party and the only other potential considered class is an insider. This is precedent in a sense to say, sell it to your best friend, sell it to your lover, right? And you might win. It's like, so it's kind of done a bit of harm uh, or, or created a lot of interest and excitement. Um, I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I tell you, this, uh, there is one area strikes me that's a current topic where this opinion may come into play, and that is in the area of student loans. Uh, there have been several cases to go up on appeal where the district judges basically overrule the findings of fact by the bankruptcy judges who held that uh, there was undue hardship and discharged the bankruptcy, uh, the debt on the student loans. Uh, I, I, I think this opinion may help bankruptcy judges to have their findings of fact held up on appeal if mm -hmm. uh, uh, somebody wants to uh, challenge whether the findings are clearly uh, erroneous. And, and I, I want to give credit where credit is due. I did, this didn't just dawn on me. Bankruptcy Judge Christopher Klein out in California uh, came up with the notion that uh, this opinion is important in the realm of student loans, and perhaps it will embolden bankruptcy judges to discharge more student loans, thinking that it will be now more difficult for appellate courts to reverse their uh, findings of fact under the clear air rule. That's well, gentlemen, uh, this, this is just a typical example, I guess, of how every time the Supreme Court writes an opinion, we end up knowing less than we knew in the first place. <laughs> this, this, this is another example of uh, leaving the area uh, fuzzier than it was before. However, and I think significantly, the Supreme Court did not rule that appellate courts can draw their own inferences from undisputed facts. In fact, uh, Justice Kagan, in her opinion for the court, essentially cited that longstanding principle. Uh, if court had ruled or said something different with regard to inferences, uh, this would have been a real blockbuster, which would have enhanced the importance of appellate courts and diminished the fact-finding power of trial courts. Well, folks, I think we have exhausted ourselves and probably also our audiences. So I think we'll call it a day. Uh, stay tuned. We have one more Supreme Court opinion yet to come down. That's the Lamar Archer Coffrin case. It will be argued in mid-April in the Supreme Court, which means 
we will probably have a decision sometime around breakaway day in June. When that happens, we'll be back with you in a matter of a couple of days to discuss that case. But in the meantime, Professors Tab and Dawson, we thank you very much for your assistance. Meanwhile, everybody, uh, have a look every day at the ABI website because it has a wealth of information for everyone involved in bankruptcy and reorganization. In the meantime, this is Bill Rochelle, editor-at-large of ABI, saying thank you and good day. 